Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, we're going to open up our Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. And last week we talked on uh, God bring us out to bring us in, part 1. And today we're going to do part 2. And remember that God, uh, in our individual lives, and He doesn't many times in our life, He repositions us in life from one place or one thing to another. He brings us out of things to bring us into something new. And this is a reoccurring theme in our lives throughout our faith, as you probably know yourself. Now, last week we looked at three main things first of how God brings us out to bring us in. I'll, I'll continue that theme, but in your notes, I already wrote them out, they're already filled in, and I kind of put them in a, in a simpler language so we could remember them easier, but to go in, and let's just, this is just review. First off, you've got to be aware of last-second temptations. Now, do you guys remember last week, we talked about when the Israelites, when they got to Shittim. Do you guys remember that at all? Say yes or no, so I know. Okay, when they got to Shittim, Remember, that's when the major temptation in Numbers chapter 25 came in, where they were tempted by the Moabite women sexually, and they were led away, and uh, they, they worshiped false idols. And so in our lives, what we don't understand or don't know is right around the corner, when we're about to go into that next phase of our life or something we're looking for, right here, we're going to have some of the greatest temptations of our life thrown at us. Because the enemy doesn't want us to walk in that thing that God has for us. Any amens on that one right there? Now, the second thing we said last week is be flexible to God's changes. Now, remember the change they made. Now, the ark will be carried by the Levites, not by the sons of Kohath. And the ark now will be out in front and will not travel in the middle of the nation of Israel. So these are changes, and we have to be flexible to God's changes as we progress. Do you remember when Jesus was, um, he took them out of the boat, and they didn't catch anything, but this time he says, cast your net on the other side. That was a small adjustment, probably, and if you've ever seen the size of boats back then, now Israel might be out for next October, we'll see, but because of everything that's happened in the Middle East, but there's a kibbutz there, and they have a boat there they discovered, I think, uh, gosh, about 30 years ago, and they actually brought it up. It's in there, and you see how big these boats were. They're not big. They're not big. So they just cast the net on the other side, and they catch all these fish. So sometimes in our life, it's just that little, little adjustment that we need to make. And once we make the adjustment, guess what? We have probably success or breakthrough in our life. Now, the third thing is this. Keep the Word of God close. It was, remember the Word of God, Ten Commandments, in the ark, and the ark is, the ark is just basically a small coffin type structure. That's all it is. It's covered in gold, and there's a lid on it called the propitiation or mercy seat or satisfaction. So they put the commandments in there, but you remember last week, we also showed where they put the law next to the ark. So it taught us as we go in, we need to be led by the Word of God. Amen? It always needs to be close to us. That's our guiding, guiding light. Now, <clears throat> let me add one more thing before we progress into this, and that is this. In verse 3, it's called the Ark of the Covenant. And the reason it's the Ark of the Covenant, because it's tied to the Sinai Covenant, 
with the law that they entered into with God. So they're a covenant people now. The best way to describe a covenant for you and I is to take the idea of marriage. Marriage is not a contract. It is a covenant that you enter into. Now, what does that mean? It means nobody held a gun to your head to get married, right? Any amens on that right there? You chose to do it. You willfully went into marriage. You said, yes, I want to marry this person. And you pledge, and I've done probably 175 weddings, you pledge unending fidelity, loyalty to this person you're going to marry, and then you make their interests, your interests. How many know that's one of the hardest things you ever do in marriage right there? To make their interests your interests. Can I say that one more time? One of the hardest things you will ever do in marriage is to make their interests your interests. Amen to that one? Because typically we want to make our interests their interests. And that just doesn't... How many have found out that doesn't work very well at all? Okay, so there's history of fighting here in the room. Okay, we got it. So that, that's the covenant right there. But that's exactly what God requires of us. That we come into this willfully, we yield to God, and we make Jesus number one on a list of what? One. That's right. He's number one on a list of one, and that's it. Now, my question, if somebody told me that, and I'm not a believer or I'm a new believer, why would Jesus want me to make him number one on a list of one? I would think that's rather selfish. Why would he want to? That's not, is Jesus insecure? Does he has to do that? And I would say, no. That's probably the most healthy thing that you and I could ever do is to make Jesus number one on a list of one. Amen on that? Now, let me show you why I would say that. Uh, turn in your Bibles quickly to Psalm 115. It's a passage that I take you to periodically uh, when it comes to idolatry or transformation, especially transformation. But Psalm 115 and uh, when you get there, say, I'm there. Okay, now watch this. In Psalm 115, <coughs> verse one, 1 through 8, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. <coughs> because your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Notice the separation. God is in the heavens. He's distinct. He's, he's up there. Now, but notice the transition. Their idols, though people idol, our God is in the heavens. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of man's hands. In other words, man creates idols, correct? They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those, here it is, those who make them will become like them. Say it again. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Now, what does that mean? It means, simply put, whatever you worship, you become like. It's just that simple. So when God says, when we covenant, and God wants, him, Jesus wants to be number one on the list of one, and we give our life to him, it's not a selfish move. It's the most healthy move that we can ever make in our life because we take on his characteristics. Now, we know this if we just go back into our teenage years with the group we ran with. Didn't we take on some of the characteristics and likes and dislikes of the group we ran with, right? It's no different with God. As we walk with God and worship God and we lift our hands and sing to God and in the word of God and I'm walking with God, I begin to take on his characteristics. That's not a selfish move by God. That's a very wise move that he gives to us to grow 
and to become better and healthier in our lives. Amen to that one? Okay, so let's get into this thing tonight as we continue on and God brings us out to bring us in part two. So let's go to Joshua 3 and we're going to look at verse 4. So here we go. However, there shall be between you, because he's telling them how they're going to go in. They're going to cross into the promised land. However, there shall be between you and it, it is the Ark of the Covenant, a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go. Now read the last line in your translation. I'll read it in mine all together. One, two, three. For you have not passed this way before. Say it again. For you have not passed this way before. Now here's the what. The ark is going to go out in front. The Levites are going to be carrying the ark. Okay. Now, it's going to be 2,000 cubits by measure out in front. Now, what's a cubit? What's a biblical cubit? The best we know is a cubit is fingertip to elbow. That's a cubit. It's about 18 inches. So if it's 2,000 cubits, then you do the math, the multiplication, and you realize it's going to be 3,000 feet out in front or 10 football fields. That ark is going to be way out in front, correct? And you're not supposed to touch it. Now, Bible students, if you remember, there's a guy named Uzzah in 2 Samuel when David's bringing the ark and it got tilted on the cart because they're not supposed to carry it on the cart. And he puts his hand on the ark to stabilize it. And what happens to Uzzah? He dies because in that, in that dispensation, you are a sinner and you can't touch God in a sense because Jesus hadn't come to wash away sins, so you couldn't come close to God like that. And Uzzah dies on the spot. So you stay far away from him. But there's another practical reason of why the ark is way out in front, and that's this. There are two million plus people are going to cross that Jordan River. That's a lot of people. So to know where you're going, you keep that thing way out in front because you've never been this way before. So two million people, if the ark's 10 football fields out there, well, guess what? You can see where you're going. You know I'm going that way because there's the ark right there. So the ark leading the way is the presence of God leading the way. We would say it in our life, in our dispensation, that we're being led by the Spirit. Amen to that one? Now, here we go. Here's the first point tonight on to go in, as we continue last week's theme. To go in, keep your eyes on Jesus because you've never walked this way before. And maybe that's where they got the song, walk this way. No, I'm just joking. I'm just... There's only a few of us that know that song, huh? Wow, I'm really disappointed in that right there. That was a high school one for me. But... Um, now, we've, keep your eyes on Jesus, basically you are, because you'd never walked this way before. Now, this might be some of the greatest advice that we're ever given in our lives, that we should keep our eyes on Jesus, because how many of you have experienced, there's so many things that we've never walked that way before, and we get into it, and we go like, I, I really don't know everything I'm doing here. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now, here's what, I, what I've come to realize that I didn't realize, I think, the first 20 years of my faith, is that when God asks me to do something, He doesn't expect me to know everything about how to do that. He doesn't expect me to have all the experience necessary to be able to do that. 
He doesn't do those things in my life. He, he kind of pushes me out there. Think about these Israelites. They've traveled 40 years through the desert. Do they know the desert? Yes. <laughs> yes, they know the desert. Uh, uh, see you later. Bye. No, I'm joking. <laughs> okay. Yes, they know the desert. Have they fought many battles? Oh, good, good, you're fine. Okay, they've done all those things. And so they know the desert, they fought the battles, but have they ever been on that other side of the Jordan in Canaan's land? They ain't never been there. They don't even know where they're supposed to be going. Nothing like that. So now they need help with the directions because they don't, all the experience they do have is not enough experience to know where they're going in there. They don't even know how they're going to cross. The people are saying, go, how are we going to get across the river? And remember last week we showed you in, at the, uh, in verse 15 of chapter 3 that the Jordan River is flooding at that season. Remember that? It's springtime. Typically, it's about 100 feet wide. It's up to a mile wide at this time. It's just flooding at this time. It's overflowing. Now, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus because we've never been this way before. Let me give you some applications on this, okay? Be honest. If you, if you got married or we're married or whatever, how many of you thought you were so ready for marriage when you got married? You thought you just knew it, man. Come on, raise them up. I want to see. I want to see all the arrogance in the room and stuff like that. And then when you got into marriage, what did you realize? Boy, I really don't know much about this, okay? I've re- I don't even know what I'm doing here, you know? And that's just true of life because you get in there and now all of a sudden you... You can't escape, right? There's nowhere you can go hide. It's like this place where you're like, it's, it's, it's like a panic room and you, you know, you're stuck in there or something. And you have to resolve your issues, correct? And how many realize you don't even know how to resolve issues when you first got married? Anybody know what I'm talking about? There's so many things you don't have an experience in. And, you, and then you think, you, you thought this person, I love this person, six months later, no, I married the devil. It's like, it's crazy. <laughs> Because, you don't, because you've never been this way before. And so this is why we are fortunate. We have the word of God to maneuver through situations. One of the greatest things you can tell yourself and learn in marriage is die to yourself, right? Yes. How many of you, that's the toughest thing you'll ever do? <laughs> this whole section here keeps raising their hand. It's like, <laughs> it, it, but you have God's word, so you've never been this way before. Let, let me tell you this one. When I started the church almost 32 years ago, I was a, a young man of 35. I had a five and a half years of youth ministry behind me. And man, I thought I was ready, man. I, and you go way back with me, Melody, way back to Auburndale days. I thought I was a hot shot. I knew what I was doing. Yeah, I knew how to run a department. I had no idea how to run a church. And so when I got in it, it was like, what in the world am I doing here? Because there's so much you just don't know. But you're learning on the job. And I found that's the way God works, that you are learning as you go. I don't believe at all in the person who says, I have to learn everything before I leave. That's impossible. That's impossible. Then there's no dependence because you got it all down now. See, you keep your eyes on Jesus. I'm not saying you don't know enough. You'll know some, you'll know so much, but there's things you just don't know. And you got to take a step and you got to jump into it and keep your eyes on Jesus because you've never been this way before. Amen to that one? And that applies all through life. Now, verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. 
Oh, I like that one. So point two, to go in, cleanse yourself. Cleanse yourself. Now sanctify, to keep it simple, means to cleanse. Cleanse yourself. Now, let me do two schools of thoughts here, okay? Two schools of thought, theologically, uh, on cleansing yourself, on sanctification. On the one side, you have the Calvinistic side thinking. How many know Calvinism? You've heard that term at least. Okay. On the other side, you have Arminianism. How many heard that term before? Okay. These are two separate theological schools of thought on issues. Now, on this issue of sanctification, Calvinism says the work of cleansing and sanctification is solely God, and only God does it. On the Arminian side, Arminian says that the man has a responsibility to cleanse himself according to the word of God. He's not denying that God didn't start the cleansing, but a man has a, a responsibility in it. So the question is, which one of these two schools of thought is the right way to go? Well, I would say um, both. I'd say they're both right. Now let me, let me show you why. Now keep your finger right here. I, mean, I can't go through a lot of scriptures, but trust me after one each. But go to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. Chapter 2 and verse 3. And when you're there, say, uh, say, my neighbor's there. Okay, now notice this. And this is when God rests on the seventh day, and this is all before the law, and that's why I believe there's a seventh-day Sabbath for all of us, because it's way before the law came into play, and God rested on the seventh day. I just follow God's pattern. Since he made the seven-day week, and we follow the seven-day week, I'll follow his pattern, take a day, and I'll just rest. Amen? Amen. Now, verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day. And what? And what? And he sanctified, that's right. He sanctified, sanctification, he cleansed it. Because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created in me. So question, does God do the sanctifying? Yes. yes, he does. Okay, now let's flip the script, and let's go to this other side. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2. It's like right after Genesis, you can't miss it. <laughs> yeah, 2 Timothy 2. And when you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, 2 Timothy 2. Now watch what Paul writes to Timothy, a young minister. He says uh, in verse 20 and 21, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone purges, cleanses, sanctifies, that's the idea right there, sanctifies himself, cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So now you find that the person, the person who walked with Christ, they have to walk, they have to cleanse themselves and walk in sanctification through the word of God and the power of the spirit of God. So you see both sides, amen? So it don't matter, to, and I, you can come and debate me all you want. I, I left these debates years ago in my life. Because you know what? I, I don't have time anymore. I'm, I'm not going to split hairs over it. I see them both in Scripture. And when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jesus. I'll go, which one was right? And he'll go, you're all dumb. No, he won't say that. <laughs> but uh, So it's an intramural argument. We're all saved. Amen? So I don't split hairs over this kind of stuff anymore. I, I, I don't have time. I have, I have time to try to reach people for God and to get as many people in that ship as I possibly can. Amen to that one? And I think that's, that's where my focus has changed in my life. Now, Let's see. Uh, 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 oh. So we're called to walk in that sanctification. Now, Joshua chapter 3 again. Let's go back to verse, let's start at verse 6. And I'll read verse 6 and 7. 
It says, and Joshua spoke to the priests. Now they're continuing on. Joshua spoke to the priests saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that, y- that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. Has God said that to Joshua before? Yes, he has. In chapter 1, he said it to him. Now, Joshua is going to instruct the Levitical priests, you guys are going to pick up the ark, and you're going to be the first one to cross over. You're going to be jumping in the water. And the Levitical priests say, oh, yippee, great, because remember, it's flooding, right? So, but they gotta, they're the first ones in the pool, and they got to go in. Now, if I'm a Levitical priest and you are, what would be your first question? How are we going to get across? Because you don't know yet. He hasn't told you. You have to just take your step and you've got to go in. It's, it's flooding. Now, God tells Joshua, I will begin to exalt you at this time. Now, think about this. As I have been with Moses, I'll be with you. Moses was exalted by the parting of the what? The Red Sea. Joshua will be exalted by the parting of the what? The, the Jordan River. Now, this is what's interesting about this. Um, is that from when Joshua is, when the Red Sea of Jordan parts, and Joshua and the gang go through, if you take that and you travel 1,500 years into the future to the time of Jesus, then you, you have to know that, and let me back up a second. I got into a debate with um, our Israeli tour guide this last trip in Israel, four years ago. And um, I'm a real... I, I'm okay with debating stuff like that. Um, and we, we went back and forth on it. He was insistent, and not a Christian, not this, he was insistent that, that, where, um, that where Jesus was baptized was in the northern part of Israel, Bethany, off the, off the Jordan. Well, there's two areas like that. And I said, no, he was baptized in the south, near Jericho. That's, that's where it's up. And so we're back and forth. And when, I, and when I came home, I said, you know what? I'm going to settle this again in my mind. And so I, I'm reading the Gospels very carefully, very carefully, again and again and again over these passages of where it was. And I think the overwhelming evidence is that Jesus was baptized in the southern part of Egypt, in that Jordan River near Jericho. And I think we visited that spot when we went this last time. Yeah. As you drive in there, you see signs that say, do not walk in these areas because there are still landmines in the ground from previous wars in Israel near that area. It's really, really interesting. But here's my point. Joshua passes at this place, and they're going to go after Jericho as the first city, right? 1,500 years later, Jesus is going to be baptized in the very same area where this, red, where this Jordan's going to part and Joshua pass, goes through. So now you see where Jesus, same name, Jesus, Joshua, their same names translate, God of, God of, my God of salvation. And so here we come, Joshua, and then 1,500 years later, here comes Jesus, and of course, the heavens part at that time, and Jesus is the one that takes us in. Joshua took them in because Moses couldn't take them in because he represents the law. Joshua represents the grace of God. He's a picture of Jesus. And 1,500 years later, Jesus will travel the same way and he will be baptized in that same spot. I just love how God does things like that in these same areas all these hundreds of years apart. Now, verse 8. 
You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Stop. If you're a priest and you've you got to step in the water and just, he says, you've got to stay in there. What are you thinking at that moment? Why don't you go, Joshua? What are you sending me in for? Now, so, so, so the third point to go in is this in your notes. You must step in. If you want to inherit what God has, has for you, you've got to step in. Now, this is, this is a biggie right here. Now, how many of you want the blessing of God in your life? I mean the real abundant blessing of God in your life. I'll put my right foot up too. I, I want these things. Now, have you ever thought this? <clears throat> that if you're going to walk in everything God has for you, you got to step. You got to get to stepping in that thing. How many people spend, Christians, spend too much time saying, God, just do it, just do it, but it requires you stepping in. You got to take a step. And how many people miss God's best night because they pray for this thing and pray for this thing, but, but they've never stepped before. And I get it because we've never walked that way before. Remember that? So it makes it tougher to step in when I've never walked that way before. And I can get stuck just praying and praying and praying and miss it because I won't step. They got to step in. Okay, let me, let me just talk to you about things I've talked to you before. And if you've been at New Beginnings for a while, you've heard me say these things. So just, and I have to keep saying it because I found out in life the law of reoccurrence themes are stated again and again in Scripture because we don't, how many of you don't get it the first time? How many of you don't get it the 15th time? The 40th time? Okay, so you're, you're on the same team as me then, okay? Okay, you got, you got to step in. And, and I'm the guy uh, that, um, because of the way, what my situation that I grew up in, you guys know, I grew up in an alcoholic's home. I had to forgive my dad when I was younger, let it go, and it, that started a lot of my healing in my life. And I don't hold my dad, I don't blame my dad, nothing like that. I, I had to grow up. But in an alcoholic's home, and in any dysfunction that's like this, really, and it's all kinds of scenarios, but the fear of failure is strong in you. The fear of abandonment is very strong in you. The fear that if you step out and do something, it's not going it's, it's to blow up in your face and you're going to look like a fool. Can anyone relate? Raise your hand. I'd just like to know who can relate to that. Okay, yeah. I lived that all my life. I still fight those feelings. And I'm, you know, I'm like 48. It's like, it's crazy right now. Okay, so... How did I start to overcome this? Because listen, I'm standing here in this church and go back in time. God tells me, leave your job, leave everything and start this church from nothing. And then we did. And then it went to, we traveled so many years. And then we, God says, buy land. I said, okay, here we go. And then God says, build this facility. And we do, okay, here we go. How does a guy who struggles with the fear of abandonment, the fear of rejection, the fear of failure, and all these things that I've struggled with in my life, they were so rooted in this dysfunctional young man here. How in the world does this all happen? How could I step out? Let me tell you, can I tell you my secret, how I overcame it? And I still practice these things. Because if I don't, my flesh versus spirit, my old flesh will take me right back. Now, Here's, here's, here's my secrets, okay? And you can share them if you want. The first thing I realized 
to force myself to step forward against all of my dysfunctional fears was that I knew that I decided I'm going to tell the congregation or I'm going to tell a lot of people what God has told me to do. Now, what I did, why I did that was there's two fears in play here. The fear of failure, fear of abandonment, or the fear that you'll think I'm a liar if I don't do it. Did you just hear what I said? Which fear do you think was greater in me now? I don't want people to think I'm a liar, right? So I use that fear right there to cancel out this fear of failure and abandonment. I have to step out now no matter what I feel because you guys are going to think, that guy's just a liar. He just says stuff and doesn't do it. So it helped me to push forward in my life. Let me give you two other realities that helped me even today. It was, uh, I want to say it was about 1989 or 90. And um, hadn't started the church yet and different things. But I was watching Monday Night Football. And uh, I think it was a Pittsburgh Steeler quarterback. And they were booing that guy and booing that guy. And, and they interviewed him, I think, after the game or something. And they asked him, they said, how, how do you deal with all the boos and the people just yelling at you? Stuff like, and he said this, and I never forgot it. He said, they don't boo the guy on the, on the bench. I go, that's right. Meaning he'd rather be, he'll take the booze because he's the starter. And I remember thinking to myself, I like being the starter. I don't want to sit on the bench. If, if being the starter takes, you're going to get ridiculed and booed, then so be it. But I'd rather be the starter. And I never forgot when he said that. But let me give you another plank that helps me move forward in spite of my fears of abandonment and all those things. I was reading an article years ago. It was a hospice workers. When hospice workers are with people, um, they hear the person that's on their deathbed for weeks or months. They hear this, they say things. And they, they notice that there's certain consistencies in the people that they're taking care of. And one of the common themes of the people on their deathbed was this. They had regrets. There were things that they knew they were supposed to do and they never did it. And now they can't. And they regret it. And when I read that, I thought, I don't want to have, I want to have as minimal regrets as I possibly can. We're all going to have some regrets. But I want to have as minimal as I can. So in my mind, and that's what keeps pushing me, I, I mean, even now, I, I, I've got three books I've got to write and now it's pushing me even faster and faster. I've got to do that. Because there's no more guarantees. And so I've got seven chapters done. I'm getting close. I'm, I'm a little over halfway there in the first one. And, and, and I want to do the, I want to finish things that I know I'm supposed to do in my life. And, 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 and every one of us has that. And see, you cannot allow yourself to just sit back and, and, and let fear of failure, fear of abandonment, or just pray and please God, please God. No, you've got to step in and do it. Now let me show you something. At the uh, the Red Sea, Moses says to the people, stand back and see the salvation of your God. And God parts it, right? But at the Jordan River, he says, you got to step in. It's a whole different animal from stand back over here to step in. Why the difference? 
Quite the difference. I think it's an issue of spiritual maturity. When you're a young believer and you don't know much, God does a lot of the work, does he not? Stand back. I'll part that thing. I'll get you through there. But as you mature in your faith, this is 40 years have gone by. As you mature, there comes this time in your life and God says, I'm not going to just stand back and do it all. You have to step in now. You have learned enough. You have grown enough. And now you are mature enough to take a step and watch me partner with you and watch that thing part. Does that make sense? Because you can't just sit back and be an infant Christian all, all of our lives. The moments come, we got to step in and we got to go, man. We got to do this thing and not just sit there and just pray and pray and pray. Nothing wrong with prayer, but God says, you got to step in, man. It's a spiritual maturity thing. Now, verse 9. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua, Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God, say living God, is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess them. And by the way, remember Jesus says about living God, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember Jesus says stuff like that? And he uses that to tell you that he's the God of the living, not of the dead. And when he says that, what's he telling you about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They're alive. They're not, they're not gone and vaporized. They're alive. They're alive in eternity, that there is an afterlife. So he's the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess, uh, dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, you glad it's me reading this? <laughs> the Amorite, the Cellulite, no, it's not in there. <laughs> it's not in there. I, I read wrong, okay. Okay. Just let me do that every couple of years and laugh, okay? Because I will do it every couple of years. And, and, and the Jebusite. The Jebusites are the ones who had control of Jerusalem. And when David comes and takes Jerusalem and Joab finds a way in through the tunnel up there. Um, now, <clears throat> now that's, this is the, 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 yeah, this is the fourth thing today. And, it's the four, and I want to couple it with, it's the fourth way to go in. But it's the fourth thing that helps me overcome my fear of abandonment, fear of failure, and allows me to step forward in spite of all my emotional, irrational fears in following God. Amen? Amen. And that's this. Remember that our God is in control. Now that is such, almost like a Christian cliche now, is it not? Oh my God's in control. And then we go home and we're freaking out, right? Am I I right? Yeah. Yeah. See, when you're going through problems, I say, I'll pray for you. When I go through problems, I start to worry. Am I, am I right? That's what we do. Okay, now, so he says, um, I'm going to start to um, exalt you, Joshua, by driving out all the peoples in the land. As you go in, we're going to drive all these people groups out, okay? And one of the people groups near the end of verse 10 is the Amorite. Did I read verse 11? No, I got to read verse 11. Let's go over, let me read it and I'll go back. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Say, Lord of all the earth. Lord of all the earth. Okay. Is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. So God says, I'm going to exalt you. And the evidence of it is I'm going to drive out. I'll exalt you by the party. But I'm going to drive out 
all these people groups in the land. And one of them is the Amorite. Say Amorite. Now, you've heard me say this multiple times. I'll keep saying it, especially in the day and age we live in now. The Amorite. In Genesis chapter 15, when God is speaking to Abraham, remember we went over a little bit of it three weeks ago as Paul was using that as a defense for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But when he's talking to Abraham and Abraham falls asleep and he has that dream and everything, he says that your people will go into bondage for four generations. And we know they go into... 400 years of bondage in Egypt. So a generation is 100 years biblically. Remember that. Some people say it's 40 years. Not a biblical generation. A biblical generation is 100 years, according to Genesis 15. But he says, then your people will come out uh, because uh, the sin of the Amorite. Oh, the Amorite, the, the ones we read here. Well, what, what's going on there is this. It, it's crazy, but it's what's happening. That Israelites are going to go into bondage for 400 years. They travel down because Joseph is down there. You know the whole story. They travel down there. And they're going to be there 400 years because there's a new Pharaoh that does not know Joseph. And they go into bondage. But it's 400 years because the Amorites are in deep sin. The people in Canaan's land, this they're in deep sin. I mean, deep, deep, gross sin. And I've shared with you that some of those sins were that they would take their babies and sacrifice them to the god Moloch. You can read about this in the Old Testament. Moloch would have his arms out. It was an open belly idol and the fire and the flames were here and they'd put the babies alive on the arms of Moloch. Sacrifice them to this crazy god. And the babies would scream and one historian, Greek historian, oh gosh, I forgot his name, he wrote that they would pound the drums real loud so nobody could hear the baby scream. This is what was going on in that land. That's what's going on in our land. And so God gave them 400 years to repent when the sin of the Amorite is complete. It's Genesis 15. And now he's coming and he says, we're going to dispossess those people. We're going to drive those people out. I gave them 400 years to repent. Now listen, if somebody ever tells you something like, well, God is so mean, how he's doing this to all these people, explain to them why. Explain to them why. And God's going to dis... Now, let's back up. God's repositioning Israel. And then he's going to dispossess these people groups because of the sins, the ugliness of what's going on. He's given plenty of time to repent. And once he dispossesses them, Israel, who's been repositioned, will now take possession of the land because they are the holy group. They're the people who with God. The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. Any amens? Amen. Never forget that. Never forget that. And this is God maneuvering the pieces right here. Now, let's get to this thought here, that he is in control. He is in control. <clears throat> he says in verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you. He's the Lord of all the earth. just for the sake of if you get into a debate, then I'll get into this. Somebody might, somebody, an atheist might come up to you one day. If you're talking, he'll say, your God is just another one of the idols. You just added another idol to the long list of idols. Your God's just one of those. And, and you have to understand, you've got to be ready for it. And you've got to tell him, go, wait a minute. 
The idols are all based on something within the universe, like the god of the, the sun god, the moon god, the water god, this animal is a god. And that's what they're saying, that our god is one of them. But what you got to tell them is this, no. My god is not a god who's part of the creation. My god is the creator of the creation. He's the god of this whole slam. He's god of everything. He holds it all together, man. He's that god. And so you've got to remind them of those things because they're going to try to put our God, Yahweh, into this idol uh, pantheon, and he's not, and he's not. Now, remember that our God is in control. How many know that's so easy to say? But it's really hard to hold on to at times, at times. When things are going good, he's in control. Yeah, it's going good, huh? Now, let me just show you. I got some scriptures here. Uh, to show you about God. Just, I want to finish off with these. You're not going to come back so, to these. So let's go to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. When you're in Jeremiah 32, say, I'm there. Now look at verse 17. It's a cool verse. It says, Jeremiah writes, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. What has God created? And if he's created that, is anything too difficult for God? And this is one of my rationales I use with people when they say, I don't believe somebody could rise from the dead. Well, let me take on a little journey of the creation of the universe and what science says about da, 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 and say, if God can create this from nothing, I think resurrection's kind of easy. Same thing with water to wine, etc., and everything else. I think it's kind of easy. So God is the creator of heaven and earth. Now, let's move on. Look at Acts 17. Watch this. This is why God is, we can believe God is in control. Acts 17. When you're there, say, I'm there. Look at verse 22. This is Paul speaking. <clears throat> and he's right there in the... Uh, in the Parthenon area and stuff like that. I think that's where he's at. And uh, I was in the Areopagus in Athens. Uh, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Now, why he's saying that is because he's walking around. He sees all these idols. They even have an, an inscription to the unknown God in case they missed one of the idols. Isn't that crazy? Verse 23. So he's, he's complimenting. He says, you guys are real religious guys. It's really cool. Verse 23. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He says, you guys are cool. You're religious. And I saw this inscription that you don't, there might be a God you don't know. And you know, you're kind of right. So let me share with you who that guy is. See how logical he is? It's very cool. Verse 24, the God who made the world, who made the what? The world, and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Do they have any temples there in Greece? Oh, yeah. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. In other words, because idols need assistance, don't they? They fall over, you got to pick it back up. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. 
So now Paul is telling everybody, our God is not a God within the created universe. He's a God who created the whole universe. Amen? So he's in control. Is he not? Let me give you another one. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. Now we're going to go verse 15 to 17. And we'll finish with these verses here. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. That's He is Jesus, and He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Now, if you ever get in a debate with somebody saying, see, Jesus was born. He had, he had a beginning. He's not this eternal being. When it says firstborn, the Greek and the idea of this, it means not that he was born at a specific time. It means he's the highest rank of all creation. The highest of the highest of all. That's who Jesus is. That's what that means right there. So he's the highest rank, the firstborn. For by him, all things were created, including who? Including us, right? And don't artists typically put something of themselves in their paintings or their creations? Amen to that one? And God has put something of himself in every one of us, creating the image and the likeness of God. And by the way, not just believers, that's also unbelievers, because you find that statement even after the flood and all the sin, people are creating the image of God. So all things are created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So did he create the whole slam? Yes, he did. Now here's the part. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Does he hold our life together? If you get to step in and step out, will he be in control? You better believe it. You better believe it. But you'll never know until you step in that Jordan River and find out that this God is true, that he is the, the only God. That's why Jesus could tell the disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm always with you. I'll never leave you. So you can trust what God tells you to do and you can get to step in and step out. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you give us great um, principles, examples on how to enter our personal promised land because you bring us out to bring us in. You always have some repositioning for our lives and that's a cool thing. And Lord, if anybody in this room tonight is having a struggle trusting you that you are in control, Lord, I pray, I pray, friends, that you take that step. If you believe this is God's being, you take that step. And then watch what God does. Not the easiest thing to do, but watch what God does. And so, God, I just pray your blessings upon everyone here tonight. Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all said... Amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. 
Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.